Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. You can find this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. In this and future podcasts, I sit down with researchers and experts who can give us valuable and important information about the coronavirus pandemic. I hope you will find these conversations stimulating and thought-provoking, and if you do, please subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Again, I'm your host, Georgia State President Mark Becker. Today, my guest is Professor Julia Hilliard, Georgia Research Alliance eminent scholar in viral immunology and director of the Viral Immunology Center at Georgia State. Welcome, Dr. Hilliard. Thank you, Dr. Becker. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. I'd like to start off, Julia, with really the basic question is, what are you and your colleagues doing to help support the state of Georgia in terms of COVID-19 testing? Because I, I know you've got an important effort underway. We are testing patients uh, up to 500 a day, and we hope to escalate up to about 1,000 to 1,500 a day. Uh, in collaboration with the uh, governor and USG Chancellor's Task Force, we are one of the CLIA labs participating in this effort uh, so that the USG system can be as helpful as it can during this uh, COVID pandemic. We are receiving samples that are delivered by the National Guard every day, twice a day sometimes. And uh, we send them back with the viral transport media that we are producing uh, and which is being used across the state of Georgia to collect uh, patient samples. Those patient samples in those tubes come back to us and we uh, test them for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 in the contents. Uh, these are swabs, nasopharyngeal swabs. They're uh, conventional swabs as well as 3D swabs. And um, we process these, and uh, sometimes it takes up to eight hours a day just on packaging before the samples can get into the test. We've got a really dedicated team of people that are working on this um, from 7 a.m. till oftentimes after midnight uh, in two different shifts, and testing these and getting the results out with uh, sometimes within 24 hours or under. And uh, for the most part, not more than 36 hours after we receive the patient's sample materials. That's, that's a lot in there. So let, let's start off with, you mentioned CLIA lab. And yes. So, uh, you know, there's the, I know the machines you're using are in lots of laboratories, but very few laboratories can actually do the work you're doing. In fact, I think it, in the state of Georgia, you're probably the only non-hospital to have uh, this capability. So could you say something about what, what is a CLIA lab and why it's important for this purpose? Well, in the late 1970s, diagnostic laboratories were springing up everywhere and there was no quality control over who would test samples. And so Congress passed a bill that enacted as part of the Medicare Medicaid Act um, to regulate diagnostic laboratories in the country. A CLIA lab is locally enforced by the state of Georgia, and uh, each state has their own CLIA or uh, comparable regulatory mechanism. And what it does is guarantee the patient that there are trained professionals working in the laboratory and that they meet all the credential standards, that there's a laboratory director that's well-trained and meets the credential standards and uh, uses uh, state-of-the-art, but also inspected equipment, uh, annually ins inspected equipment to do all of the tests 
Reagents are quality controlled and lot identified, and it guarantees the patient that there is some oversight on the test results that they get and that they're the optimum test results possible. And so, you know, I know a lot of people feel somewhat confused because they say, well, can I just get a drive up test where they'll literally do the test right there while I wait? And, you know, your test is. Um, as you said, it takes some hours to actually go through everything and the quality control. So, what are the you know what are the differences between these sort of spot tests or on the spot tests right. as opposed to uh, the level of uh, rigor and quality control that you're exercising? That's a really interesting question. There are different types of CLIA certification. Our certification is the highest level for high complexity testing. So, if you go out and uh, do a five-minute test, you're doing something in a low-complexity uh, situation with CLIA. Doctor's offices will frequently run a urinalysis right on the spot. That's a low-complexity test, and they do have a CLIA license only to do that test. In a high-complexity situation, you have the ability to do much more sophisticated, much more sensitive, and specific tests with a great deal more accuracy and precision. Some of the drive-by tests right now, not, the, not where you go and just get swapped, but the ones that you're waiting five minutes for your results, I have a 15% false uh, negative rate. Now that's devastating. False I get a negative test, but I still might have the virus yeah, and I just absolutely. don't know it. And you can still spread it. So that's devastating. And uh, it's great for a spot check, but it's not something you take home to the bank. That's a great answer. And so, you know, we, we go from those spot tests, you mentioned viral transport media. And so uh, I know those are something you're actually producing. And I think, are you the only ones producing these for the state of Georgia right now? At this point, yes, uh, we are. We're running out of hands as the tests, uh, the numbers of tests escalate. So uh, Georgia Tech and uh, UGA would like to get on board and help with the VTM project. But uh, for the last eight weeks, uh, Dr. John Houghton's students have been, graduate students have been preparing this tirelessly day and night and have produced at least a minimum of 2,000 tubes a day and sometimes 5,000 tubes a day. And the National Guard comes to pick these up and they're deployed immediately to the field for sample collection. And, and why are they important? You know, so somebody's gonna stick a swab up your nose, they call them brain ticklers. <laughs> and they take the swab and they do what? <laughs> well, the National Guardsmen uh, take the swab, sometimes the wrong end of the swab, and uh, put it up into your nasopharynx. And there's some great YouTube videos. So if you're going to have one, watch it. It really calms one down to watch okay. see where this is going. And it doesn't remove any part of your brain. <laughs> so that's good. But uh, basically, they take this swab. And imagine in the heat and in Tyvek suits with full garb and gloves uh, and a car full of people, they're taking this swab and then they break it off into the medium that we prepare because that medium will ultimately stabilize the sample and avoid degradation. So it's very important. It's a sterile media. It's been safety checked and QC'd. And so we know that it will protect any virus that's present in it until it gets to a laboratory. And presumably protects also from the sample being contaminated so that yes. you, don't, yes. you don't have somebody else's sample mixed with your own. Right. That's terrific. So is um, you know, one of the 
concern or not concerns, but one of the conversations you hear out there is, okay, so they, you get your brain tickled, it's unpleasant, uh, but that is how you get the definitive results. But we're starting to hear talk of a saliva test. You know, you're, you're, you're an expert in diagnostic testing, obviously. You run, a, you run you know, one of the few CLIA certified labs in the state of Georgia. Uh, do you have any sense of where we might be going with future testing? Is it, is it going to be brain tickling for the foreseeable future or, or saliva tests on the horizon? Or, or, and should we be optimistic that they'll come? Well, the uh, nasopharyngeal swab that's currently used is the most accurate short of a sputum sample uh, that really can only be collected in a hospital. The problem with a saliva sample is that saliva is rich in a lot of enzymes. It's made so so that we can it, it assists in the digestion of the food we chew. And it's full of um, molecules that basically can break other molecules down. So it's not the ideal microenvironment for a virus to survive within. Um, I don't consider it an ideal sample, a stopgap sample. What I worry about is without rigorous tests that we will again have um, false negatives as a result of using the saliva sample. Uh, for right now, the swab surplus is building back up. Uh, Puritan is, is putting out, I think, a quarter of a million a week. And I think that we've bypassed this. And one note on the nasopharyngeal swab, it's actually not that noxious. It is rather noxious if someone else does it to you, perhaps. <laughs> but um, you can watch a YouTube video and see how easily one can obtain this swab with little to no discomfort or pain. It's actually, we do it weekly in the lab to make sure we're staying clean and uh, it's not unpleasant at all. Good. I guess you get better with practice as in everything in life. <laughs> yeah, probably. You mentioned basically the supply chain. So you've talked about viral transport media, which you're making, swabs, which I believe you're producing some of your own as well as getting them from outside suppliers, reagents. In the early days, that was one of the big issues with testing was supply chain and availability of materials. Are, are we seeing improvements in the supply chain and are you getting a steady flow so that you're not concerned about running out? No, we face the supply chain issue daily. Uh, we are always concerned about running out. Supplies are very, very limited for the testing labs and researchers want to buy up the supplies too to test their um, experimental kits. And so that even further limits uh, the supply source for diagnostic laboratories. We are very, very worried. We're not, uh, we were not as a country prepared for this, and we certainly don't have a reserve of reagents. It's pretty much a week by week basis. So literally you're, you're looking a few days out saying we're, we're, we're good for three days, five days, seven days, but you're right. not looking out and say, I've got enough, we have enough supplies that we'll be good till October if we need to be. Right, definitely. Uh, we count them in terms of patients that we can test. We have uh, supplies for a thousand more patients or three thousand more patients, and that's way the way we look at that. And uh, labs have had to shut down due to uh, lack of availability, and they come back online as soon as the uh, products are available again for testing. Now you're getting, you know, five hundred or more samples a day. Uh, some of those have live virus in that vir viral transport media, or I presume they have live virus. Are you concerned about, you know, that you're actually working with a, a virus that's highly contagious and it is um, life-threatening? Yes, well, one of the, one of the 
common tenets of microbiology is if you're not afraid of it, you shouldn't be working with it. Um, and so, yes, I, I would say everyone's hypervigilant. We try not to work with any samples when we're tired. Um, by the time we've unpackaged them, we're ready to process them and they are no longer infectious at that point. But when we're unpacking them, that's actually the most critical stage of handling the samples because at least uh, two to 20% of those samples, depending on where they were collected, do contain live virus. And hopefully by having that live virus and just using a portion of the sample for the, conducting the test, we can later uh, make uh, arrangements that meet regulatory compliance issues and grow some of those viruses and see what they actually look like and, and how they behave. Uh, so you mentioned that they're no longer alive. So what, what are you doing? You're inactivating the virus in some way, shape or form? For the test, we inactivate it with basically detergent. And uh, it's a 1% sodium dodecyl sulfate uh, solution that goes onto the sample. We only use about 200 microliters of the sample. We have 3,000 microliters of the sample, uh, sometimes 2,000 microliters. And with that small sample that we take, we actually place it in detergent, which immediately kills the infectivity of the virus and releases at the same time the viral nucleic acids. So we can then turn around and, and use those in the test. Right. And as you said, in microbiology, these are the sorts of things you're used to doing. I know that you're, you're a viral immunologist, so you work with viruses, not necessarily SARS viruses all the time, but you work with viruses. So right. you know, for, for, for normal people who don't do that, this would be even more scary. But you're in a sense, you're used to being a, around such you know, live yeah. viruses and having to inactivate them is just part of what you do. Yes, absolutely. It's my day job. It's your day job. <laughs> Seems to be my night job too. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but importantly, um, you, as you said, you're taking care to make sure you're not putting yourself at risk by doing things you shouldn't be doing when you're tired. Correct. Yes, definitely. Okay. The one other testing question that's getting a lot of attention is uh, antibody testing or serology testing. So, could you say something about how that kind of testing will be different and what some of the challenges are of coming up with? A good serology test. Again, we now have, you know, I'm getting um, emails from healthcare providers saying, we've got serology tests. Come in and we'll let you know in a few minutes whether or not you have uh, the you know, antibodies to this virus. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that's also a very interesting topic of it's, um, you don't know what tests are good. Uh, I can tell you the basic things that are required of a test. And we just don't know that the tests that are being touted are actually accurate, precise, what their false negativity rate is, what their false positive rate is. But the thing to remember about an antibody test, it only tests if you've had the virus. It does not tell you whether you are still infectious. It does not tell you if you're protected from getting the virus again. To have an ideal test, um, and one other point is it doesn't even tell you if you have SARS-2. It may tell you that you've had a coronavirus infection. We've all had coronavirus infections, um, but it doesn't necessarily tell you that it's SARS-2. So to have an ideal serology test, you need to be able to differentiate the antibodies that are directed or induced by SARS-2 from antibodies that are induced by other coronaviruses, as well as other cross-reactive 
viruses that are outside the family of, of coronaviruses. And, you know, that, that, that takes me to, it's going to push a little beyond the diagnostic side, but as you said, we've all had coronaviruses because coronaviruses are the viruses of the common cold. That's right. As I understand it. So um, in, in some sense, we've had to learn to live with the fact that colds come every year. Um, does that, do you, do you think you know that, th does that present a challenge for a vaccine? Because we don't have cold vaccines and that's part of it being colds just normally aren't dangerous like this virus is, but Right. Do, do we know that coronaviruses are even amenable to vaccines? And, you know, the same question you're raising, just because you had antibodies doesn't mean you're, you're protected. Exactly. And uh, have you only had one coal in your life? <laughs> they do come back. Uh, I, I, I anybody wish. that we make uh, are not so protective as we would like them to be. Now, if the right epitope uh, is found that will uh, induce protective antibody responses, you will be somewhat protected, but you'll never be totally in the clear. And like flu, you'll probably have to have this yearly or at least biannually in order to maintain a high level of antibodies. Definitely not protective, however. It is not a sterilizing immunity that's, that these viruses induce. And um, sometimes uh, vaccines can make, I'm a real proponent of vaccines, by the way, um, but sometimes we have to be careful when we're investigating new vaccines that they don't actually induce antibodies that make the infection worse the next time you get it, such as in dengue infections. So, yeah, we, there's a history of that, yes. Yes. Well, this is all fascinating, and I know it's going to continue to evolve. So, um, and I know you've, you've got to get back to your lab. I really appreciate you being on, and hopefully we'll be able to come back to you weeks or months down the road, and um, I'm sure we're going to learn new things. I, I would love for you to be out of business soon, but I'm afraid it's not going to happen real soon. Two different perspectives of coronavirus. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you. Bye-bye. Conversations with Mark Becker, a podcast produced by Georgia State University. And you've been listening to a conversation with Professor Julia Hilliard, Georgia, State, Georgia Research Alliance eminent scholar in viral immunology and director of the Viral Immunology Center at Georgia State. To hear future conversations with experts on the front lines addressing the coronavirus crisis, You'll find conversations with Mark Becker wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening, and remember to subscribe so that you will not miss future episodes. Good day for now.